At the end of a nice conversation about the Mitchum brothers, I was recently able to sneak in a brief, informal interview with Colin James, host of the Creamed Corn and the Universe podcast. Although Colin was not anticipating my mini-interview, he was a great sport and provided one interesting response after another. Thanks again to Colin, and thank you for listening. Where do you think Cooper is during those 25 years? I, I think that he is indeed in the wait, or yeah, he's in the waiting room. And I know people have a discussion or have discourse about how long it feels to him. I honestly think he feels every moment. I think that's a factor of why he's so slow when he gets to the real world. Because when you spend nearly half of your life in this like otherworldly, like uh, presumably malevolent or malevolent type of atmosphere, yeah. that your sense of time it doesn't really matter to you. So I think that's another factor of like why Dougie is the way he is. And do, do you think he's in different places at once? Like, do you think he's uh, he's Mr. C and he's Dougie and he's in the Red Room, like, kind of simultaneously? Uh, this is something I've thought about. I think in terms of Dougie, it is just Dougie in that moment. But I think that there's something about, you know, the superimposed Cooper we see in Part 17 where there is something about him being in the in the waiting room or the Red Room or the Black Watch or whichever people like to refer to. That mm -hmm. that's what's really uh, at play in terms of the more uh, more omnipresent aspect of Cooper and like the magician part of him. If if this is some sort of uh, partial reality or um, Cooper perception, like if he's like kind of watching from the red room, as as some people uh, bring that idea up. Um, let's just say that just for fun. Let's say the Mitchum brothers are like they're not actually like real characters. They're like uh stand-ins for certain ideas or something like that. Um I know David Lynch has said about Bob that he's kind of like a uh an abstraction or, or an abstraction in human form. He said something along those lines. You know, where it's not necessarily like this real character. Um the Mitchum brothers presumably are real characters, but if, if they're not, if they're like sort of representations for something else, you, you have any uh, have any thoughts? Um, actually, this I don't necessarily have thoughts about them in Vegas, but I do have thoughts about them when they reach Twin Peaks. Um, is okay if we kind of shift towards like part sixteen and seventeen for this? Yeah, because we did address everything about them helping Sonny Jim and Janie E while Dougie after he's been electrocuted. Uh, and they do promptly help him when they get to, you know, to get out of Vegas and into Twin Peaks. And I think that is where it's real to a certain degree. But I think there's something in Part 17 where it's it's specifically when Cooper, when he calls Frank Truman, and he's like, he's very enthused, like, hey, is the coffee on? Yeah. And the thing is that that Twin Peaks sign is immaculate. It looks exactly the same as we saw, like, what we see in 1989. And there's something about that where it's like the world of Twin Peaks has changed way too much. Like there's so much that's changed that's hard to believe that sign would still be there. And I guess oh. also on top of uh, on top of that, uh, this, not that this had to do with the Mitchum brothers, but it's like when Jade when she cleans out her Jeep, and then uh, the the guy who cleaned it he has the key for room three one five. Yeah. On the back it says clean place reasonably priced. I think there's something about how Cooper where. Uh, where he's kind of imposing certain things, and I think that uh, the Twin Peaks sign is kind of that, and this does tie into the Mitchum brothers in Part mm -hmm. 17, 
and also where the passivity of these characters starts to come in because there's just this converging where all these people come in for the Freddy versus Bob fight and they're all just yeah. kind of stand there. You know, I will say is that they, they do have that great line that says one for the grandkids where, yeah. and I feel like that we haven't really brought this up too much because between the uh, one for the grandkids and in uh, part 16, once again, where they're passive, where Chantal, Hodge, and the Polish account have their shootout, it's like, what the fuck kind of neighborhood is this? <laughs> it's like, people are under a lot of stress, Bradley. Yeah. Where it's like, they have these jokes where it's like, you can see them coming a mile away, but there's something about Robert <laughs> Knapper's delivery that's just perfect, where Pure. you can never grow tired of it. It's just this thing that just... Ever, the ever. Scene, the scene would not be the same without it. Ever. It's pure comedic genius. Um, and I know people who have that delivery, you know, and they're just they're just uh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I, they, I love how, how not tough-looking um, Jim, Jim, uh, Jim Belushi is, you know, but how tough he is. But on the surface, and, and the puppy dog faces that he makes often, you know, and even when he says, I, I want to kill, you know, I want oh, or I just hate him so bad, you know, I want to kill that guy. He's still like, you want to pinch his cheek. Mm -hmm. So, But yeah, I think the, uh, I, I guess I said everything on my end about uh, the reality bending, uh, at least when they get to Twin Peaks. Did you have any thoughts about how you viewed it? Because I know that once you get to part 17, this is where everyone's kind of thoughts just kind of are, are kind of independent on their own and how they view Twin Peaks up until that point largely depends on how they view this Freddy versus Bob fight and kind of how these characters, how they kind of tie into it because it really is just Freddy, Bob, and even Cooper is pretty passive at that point. We're like, there's so many people in this room and uh, nearly all of them, including the Mitchum brothers, are just kind of there. Yeah, I, I have not untangled that whole puzzle myself. Um, I've seen and read and heard different takes on it. I'm, I would say very much most partial to the approach that uh, John Thorne brings in, in his book, Ominous Wish. Um, I find that the most persuasive. By no means is that like the, uh, the definitive account. That's just the explanation that seems to make the most sense to me. And just to make sure, just for anyone who hasn't read Ominous yeah. Woosh, uh, is there anything that John wrote that really resonated with you in that? Yeah, that, that, that that's the clearest illustration of the idea that Cooper is like the main uh, the main filter, like to the to the majority of of uh, the return, that the events when they're happening in reality, and then perhaps even if they're not. They're kind of like his particular personal take on it, um, often viewed like frustratingly from this stuck place in the red room, um, while like while his two halves, like his pure good and his pure bad halves, are like out in the world doing their thing. Um, that's probably a pretty bad summary of it, but the idea that like Cooper's the the dreamer, not like literally somebody who dreams. But the fact that, uh, or the con or the idea that we all have our own filters on reality, and maybe there is, or maybe there isn't, like a base reality. But everybody, uh, there's probably no way around the fact that we all kind of have a subjective like perception of things, and you know, you and I can view the same events, but 
we're often not going to have like we're not going to have like the you know a, a carbon copy view of it we're going to filter it through our own history through our own perception um through our, <laughs> through our own programming to some extent if it comes to politics for example um we're all programmed to some extent some of us more or less than others so that's gonna give us a little bit of a tulpa element as far as how we view things um so yeah i think that whole scene is i guess he would he would also say that it's an exaggerated sense of cooper has like kind of like an exaggerated sense of self at that moment where he gets to be like the one and only and I don't want to go on and on. I'd, I'd rather, rather recommend anybody else like go check it out for themselves. But oh, sure, that, that, that's, that, that's like that's like one of the only things that really kind of sounded coherent to me as far as interpreting that scene. Yeah, that that's the thing about uh, about like character arcs that end at part seventeen is that there's never really a good way to end it because there's so much ambiguity. I mean, there's hmm. stuff like the final dossier where you can be like, there's a continuation of that scene. But it really is just primarily focused on Tammy. So even then, it's kind of mm. hard to explain. Like, no, the talk, you know, discussing the Mitchum brothers or James or Lucy, uh, Frank Truman. There's just so many characters in there, and again, there's just there's just so much to really just uh, to unpack, and uh, never really sure how to take it and how to conclude it. Yeah, but the Mitchum brothers are uh, they are our focus uh, for today. So what do you make of them in that scene in that setting? I, I I think the my big takeaway, at least uh, one of the first ones I think of, is the one for the grandkids is like the perfect way to end like the the most bizarre battle that you could have ever possibly put to put it mildly. But I think that was the big one. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, there is a certain passivity to the characters when they reach Twin Peaks. But so I think that Robert Nepper to have that line is just the best tension breaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, I, yeah, please. Oh, no, I was going to say is that uh, I do remember when I did my interview with Amy Shields is that uh, I mentioned how uh, Dougie, now that he became Cooper, that we're just kind of going off in that trajectory. If we're, if we're going to kind of bypass that it's a dream world or maybe it returns to quote-unquote reality, mm. that, uh, that Candy, she'd still be on her trajectory the same way Dougie Jones was and it would actually help the Mitchum brothers further. Again, there's a lot of stipulations to it, but I'm just kind of just going with, like, in the final dossier, if they're talking about as if it's reality. And again, whether it's Laura was killed or Laura went missing, that's a whole debate of itself. But if yeah. we're just going with, like, Candy, uh, Mandy, and Sandy, and then the Mitchum Brothers returning to Vegas, that they would still, that Candy would find ways to be able to help the Mitchum Brothers stay on that path. Yeah, it's interesting. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure how to follow that up, but I'm going to follow that up with a question for you. Sure, what is it? That's 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 my comfort zone. Is the question guy? Um, you're good at this. You're good at this show that you're doing. You're good at I think uh, running conversations, um, interpreting things. Sort of like all of a sudden, like you're just kind of casually talking, and then something sneaky sneaky insightful sort of worms its way in there is that a lot planned ahead or is that sort of just coming out on the spot but my second question is um your the theme of your show is really like sort of character studies and i'm a middle school and sometimes high school english teacher 
And one of the things that we do is like character studies. Do you have a like a do you have like a Colin method for breaking down or studying characters? If you had to articulate it, is there anything you'd say? I think for the first question, it's a I, a lot of it does come from the flow of being able to talk with a co-host. And there's something about the energy you can get from that person, like the mm. ideas that they bring to you. Uh, I would say that I, you know, I do have my list of notes that I usually adhere by. And even if something goes off or off track for a bit, I can find a way to bring it back. But I, I would say that there are, it's a, it's a lot of that, but also there can be a bit of like off the cuff, like, oh, this just crossed my mind and this mm. seems right at the moment. Uh, but as for the second question, I think when it comes to Twin Peaks, I think it's just that since Twin Peaks, obviously all three seasons, Fire Walk With Me, and then all the books, there's a certain subjectivity and also the contradictions in a lot of them where it's like a, you kind of have to figure a way out with some of these characters. Like I think of when I did the Harry Truman episode where, you know, we talked about his arc throughout the original series and what mm -hmm. his absence was in uh, season three. But then we also talk about the passion play, how it's like this, like sort of a Masonic ritual that was in the access guide of all things. And I feel like that dynamic of uh, basically a ritual in the woods is like very hard to overlook for a character like Harry Truman. So I think there's like all these little things you can find in the books or little things you can hone in on on the show. And it's like, where does this character stand in a broader context? Or how much do they understand about one reality versus another? Or how do they how do they contribute even if it's a small character? Uh, so for Twin Peaks, I feel like that's how that's how I look at it. I don't know if I can necessarily I say I can apply that method to other media because there are just some about Twin Peaks where it just raises more questions than answers in its own unique way. And I think it's just that I kind of look at in context with like all three seasons, uh, the movie and all the books where I kind of take it that there's something about how these how these characters are described and how, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but there's just something about like, you know, how all these characters, uh, where you can find and if, like, if you can uh, filter out if it's an unreliable narrator, or, like what mm -hmm. rings true to you versus what doesn't. Yeah, I apologize if that's a long-winded answer, but that's no. the, it's mostly the way that I view it whenever I prepare per character each episode. Is, is there, so there's a fair amount of reading, fair amount of uh, uh, running through memory lane, fair amount of writing things down. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you find that, like, uh, at least while you're focused on one particular character, you, to some extent, like use them as a prism to look at the show as a whole like uh do you know what i mean do you know I, what i mean i would say i would say yes because um i mentioned uh, one of the examples i use is my josie episode where it was like an hour-long episode and i'd say at least 10 minutes was about her couple moments in the secret diary and it was uh you know questioning about uh josie's relationship with laura about like if that's the type of unethical behavior that seems in line for josie or if there's a certain subjectivity that is being overlooked or or anything like that so i think there's just something that's interesting about what you see in the show on top of what the other books are you know it's like when john bernardi he talks about in blue rose task force where he says that you know they don't they don't like to use the word canon but all of them have been approved approved by lynch and frost so there is a certain validity uh to some extent when uh, exploring these characters Let's say, uh, let's say we take Jacoby's glasses, right? The, the, the red and the blue. And I know you have a pair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Sorry, I know yeah, you can tell me, the shelf. Yeah, and I know you can tell me where to get a pair, because I, I have that link bookmarked. Um, 
But let, let's just say, you know, in this eye, we have Bradley. In this eye, we have Rodney. And we put those glasses on and we look at Twin Peaks. And we look at Twin Peaks The Return, even. Like, from outside or even from inside the show. Um, what do you see when you put, like, those glasses on and you look at the show? Um, I definitely see two hardened criminals where... Maybe we're a little removed from how terrible they are in some cases because, uh, you know, it's anyone who's been out to Vegas. Like you, it's like you have to be a very certain type of person to uh, survive that type of environment. I don't care how rich or how poor you are. You have to be a certain type of person. And I think that if we're going to go with the beginning, that maybe their time in the orphanage would be them learning how to survive. And this is like just kind of the line of work they fell into. And uh, it's like what Lynch says, where it's like there's a certain closeness that they have, where there's that very family dynamic. It's like you were saying before about how, you know, they're very nice to the people that are in their lives, and they can be very ice cold to the people who are, you know, who are, like, basically opposed to them. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where they're at. And then uh, Candy and Dougie are the ones that shift that trajectory. Candy a little more of a slow burn, but Dougie more of like a, at least what we're seeing in the Vegas storyline, and just kind of taking his reality versus any dreamlike aspect. But those are two key characters that really just bring them back to the light. And, uh, you know, what? In, again, going with what Mai was saying before, is that if Candy is the slow burn, that she'll keep him on that trajectory. I think that sums up the uh, sums it up at a cursory glance. Was there anything else that I could or should explore on that? No. No, just curious. Um, a couple, a couple little tidbits that I had written down were, um, well, first my, my wife's take the first time she watched it with me, she's like, uh, oh, this is a uh, girl's next door, which was a, that was a show with, uh, Hugh Hefner and his three girlfriends. And that was like for E entertainment television. And that, that was just like the first thought she had when she saw Candy Mandy Sandy with the Mitchum brothers. I thought that was interesting as a first impression. Like, like, uh, that is not, <laughs> that is not like a reality that most people are in touch with. Um, you know, having breakfast in your silk robe and having the big, huge pitcher of milk for your cereal and, you know, the whole thing and to have well-appointed and well-dressed, um, companions or, or servers or roommates or employee, whatever they are. Um, but it is still doable. I don't know. Who wants to do that but it, it is still doable to like create a life and a lifestyle that is completely like unique like almost movie like mm -hmm. so to, to some extent like their whole lifestyle is com completely ludicrous but it's still actually like if you want to create your own world we are allowed to do that you know here on earth you know <laughs> we could create our own orbits we could create our own world and, and they seem to have done that so that's kind of neat um i like I love their line deliveries. I mean, there's so many line deliveries, inc including when, when Rodney fires. He's like, you know, you're, you're effing fired to the guy on the ground. It's just really beautifully delivered. And then when when Janie E is hugging, um, when Janie E is, is hugging Cooper, and Cooper tells her, you know, we'll be back again. Like, the Mitchum brothers are cool enough to see what's happening there and, like, not to meddle. I like that they have some uh, some common sense at that moment, um, but really, there's there's so many that the fact that they're brothers, and so you got the brothers Mitchum, 
the brothers Horn, the brothers Fusco, who else? Uh, the brothers Truman, I guess. Maybe, maybe more. Any thoughts on that? That there's so many pairs of brothers. Um, there's. I, I guess there's one thing about the brothers, but I think in terms of the Vegas uh, plot thread, I seem to notice the uh, three seems to be a common component. You know, you think of like uh, there's the three Fusco brothers. There's Candy, Sandy, and Mandy. Or the slot machines have three. Uh, there's just a lot of aspects of three and how I think it's in throughout all of the return, but I, I definitely see it hyper focused on uh, on the Vegas storyline. So I have thought about like how duality is a very prominent part in in Lynch's work, but I also think there's some about three being more distinctly pro pronounced in the return, and uh, it's something that I really noticed on my last rewatch that I try to try to figure out because. Every time I do a rewatch, you think you're kind of happy with where you're at, but there's this one little thing that makes you think, okay, maybe I need to rework it, or I shouldn't be too comfortable with where I stand currently. Do you feel compelled to have a a uh, stance? Like, like, do you feel like you're moving toward a grand interpretation or some sort of uh, trying to have a theory that's coherent? Or having piecemeal ideas about different parts you personally like your own trajectory as a fan of the show feel like you're moving towards some synthesis or uh, as far as what rings true to me i would say that there will be core aspects that i'll be comfortable with but there's always to be little things that challenge it like uh, how i view the realities of twin peaks uh, especially after part 17 about how i view realities or how i view dreams but yeah, there's always going to be that little thing that throws a wrench into it of like, okay, maybe I shouldn't get too complacent about it. I don't think I could have it etched in granite uh, or be like, hey, I understand it now. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's what the allure of Twin Peaks is, that it's always on, on people's minds because there's always this little thing. There will all be that little scene that uh, that just rips a hole in what you think, and suddenly it's like you have to like rework how you feel about it. Now, you might not like this question, but... Uh... <laughs> Um, what is this, what is the return about, or like, uh, or what is, what is your take? <laughs> um, like generally. Ultimately, ultimately, I think that, uh, I, I think that if we're going to talk about with Cooper being the main character, it's, uh, you know, when we see Mr. C and Dougie Jones, and then we'll say Richard as well, and uh, of course we'll see, quote unquote, the traditional Cooper or Black Lodge Cooper, but we're seeing Dale Cooper in a very deconstructed way where, for example, you know, it's like I was saying before, it's like it shows Mr. C of like what the worst that Cooper is capable of. Uh, Dougie Jones shows the best that Cooper is capable of. Uh, then we see him in parts 16 and 17 where we get that like lovable original series Cooper. Uh, Richard is something that's just like completely open for interpretation. And I that, that's the one that's changed way more than anything else. Like mm -hmm. I don't think anything comes close. But then there's the Red Room Cooper, where I think there's something about that permeates all of, not just like what we see, what you mentioned about Dougie or Mr. C, but throughout all of the return. And I would even say anything pertaining to the original series and Firewalk with me. So I really view it as like Cooper's storyline and how, uh, how, in my opinion, I think he makes a bad decision worse at almost every turn. Uh, that like the best thing he could have done was to stay with uh, Janie E and Sonny Jim. But again, that's a whole can of worms for another time. Did he have that option? I I think he did. Uh, it depends on how, when people talk about how persistent he was about rescuing Laura, if it was the right thing to do. Because that's the scene where a lot of people like feel like, 
uh, you know, it's. I think the the only best way I can say it's basically like the last Jedi of like of Twin Peaks, where this is the moment where people feel like it really ranked true to them or it just killed the franchise. So it depends on who you ask, but uh, but yeah, I think there's something where the I don't think he quite understood the ramifications of what this truly meant and what it would do. When did he have, in your opinion, what was the tipping point? Where he moved from, okay, I have this family that I could stay with, or I could go on this, you know, this venture. Because, um, you know, you said you, you kind of thought he should have stayed with them. Did, and I know you just answered my question, but w when was, like, the fulcrum point where he could have went this left or right? And you're, I, like, did it happen before the, the airport? I would say mm -hmm. it was when they're in the Silver Mustang and he takes uh Sunny Sunny Jim and Janie E and he explains and like he's and he's explained like who he is effectively mm -hmm. and how it's like he'll be back. And the thing is that he does have the I guess the Dougie Tolpa in part eighteen, but I still think there's something my interpretation of Tolpas mm -hmm. are a little different, but I feel like it would have been better off if it was just Del Cooper because there's something about him feeling like he had to change the past, how he was insistent how the past dictates the future. And mm. I, I I think he I don't think he ever had any bad intentions. I think he had noble intentions, but it was uh it was a really I think it just had very serious ramifications and I think yeah. it did more damage than good. So you think at that moment when you know when he's kneeling down and kind of hugging them and saying goodbye, at that moment he still had in your view, he still had the capacity to stop himself. Yes, yeah, because it's like what I was saying is uh, is that, you know, in season two, we talked about how he hopes it's not right. too late to start a family. Mm -hmm. And he's done everything to make these people's lives better, whether it's like the Janie E, Sonny Jim, the Mitchum brothers, uh, to a certain degree, Candy, Sandy, and Mandy, uh, Bushnell Mullins. And it's like he could have mm -hmm. very easily just lived this, like, life where it's like he could have just been dougie jones and did something you know did, did something like in a more i guess like immediate proximity where it's like i think he felt like he had to be an fbi agent to do something more worldly but i think that's sometimes just having a family would just be enough for him yeah no, that's really an interesting take um any chance he didn't have as much say over the matter as, as we we might think he did like like uh, it was kind of out of his hands the only thing I could really say on that is that if we're talking about, because uh, I was mentioned before, is that when you spend, in my opinion, I think he felt every moment of that 25 years in the Black Lodge. Mm. Maybe there's something about he has to wrap this up. Uh, <laughs> like uh, there's something about like the like he came to Twin Peaks because of Laura Palmer's murder. That maybe being stuck there and that like uh, he can change everything. Uh, I think that's the it's uh, that. If I can make a comparison to Star Trek, it's almost not unlike in The Wrath of Khan, where he's marooned for 15 years, and once he can get off planet, he immediately, like, his crew said, we can go anywhere, but then Khan is insistent that he has to go after Kirk. Cooper is much more noble than that, but I think he's not really looking at a wider picture. He can see a big picture, but not the widest of picture. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, can I ask you one more question, slightly yeah. off topic? Yeah, sure. You know, Bob Bob is with in or with Leland at one point, and then he's with Cooper or with Mister C or perhaps in him at some point. And uh, we we all have these bad feelings about Leland and the the 
but but we don't have these bad feelings about Cooper, who also did bad things with Bob. Um, why do you think that is? is it... I well, I think that I I think that certainly Fire Walk with me that we're not looking at it from the outside looking in. We're seeing like how much this has damaged Laura, and then if we're going with the secret diary, that's also a factor. And uh, I think that there's this certain ambiguity with Leland because you'll get people like who will be very insistent. That's like much like the original series where Leland was possessed by Bob, so he's just as much a victim. But then you look at Fire Walk with Me, where there's uh, more of an ambiguity of how much does Leland know or how complicit is he. And I think that's a big factor. But with Mister C, it's like uh, it, it's more of a deeply recessed part of Cooper. Where it's something he's capable of. Uh, I think that, because, uh, you know, keep in mind with Leland, there's just Leland Palmer. But with Mr. C, it was this thing that was creating the Black Lodge. And uh, it's like, it is the deepest parts of, uh, of Cooper, but it is also kind of independent of itself. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, that doesn't change the fact that, you know, what Mr. C did, like with Audrey or the birth of Richard Horn or. Uh, take it as you will, but Mr. C killing Richard Horn. Like, he kind of, I kind of got a sense in part 16 that he knew something was going to happen. But, you know, and then there's all these other things that he's doing throughout the world to get to Judy. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's something where, there's just, uh, there's just something about Mr. C, about how he's kind of just, it, it's kind of like what Bob says in the, in the missing pieces, where he says, I have the fury of my own momentum. Yeah. I think Mr. C is not that far from that trajectory, that he was creating the Black Lodge and just kind of doing, you know, what he's supposed to do. Yeah, that's interesting. And and even though he's a part of Cooper, presumably, um, it's a little easier to forgive Cooper and yeah. separate him. Yeah, I and, think... yeah than, it is to, than it is to separate Leland from from his, like, darker side. To bring it back to the Mitchum brothers... Um, how can we connect them to Mr. C? What's the trajectory there? Um, I, I guess there's a couple ways. I guess there's the whole, since they're with Dougie, that uh, that we're seeing the exact opposite. But if we're going to talk about the, uh, I guess, the survi survival nature of the Mitchum brothers, that, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the thing is that with, uh, with uh, Bradley and Rodney is that they're not really like they're not really they're kind of odious characters when you get down to it. But you know, one unlike a lot of characters we see in the Riddle series, there doesn't seem to be like a sexual motivation to it. There's not really a power in that regard. Well, you know, there's Candy, Sandy, and Mandy where they dress like showgirls, but I never yeah. got a sense that there was something nefarious going on. So mm -hmm. I think that's what it is where it's like you think of how uh, I think that you think of like basically sex crimes how that's uh, how that's depicted in Twin Peaks, and the Mitchum brothers are pretty far removed from that. Where, uh, where there's something about they're very strong, they're very powerful, they're well versed in the business, but mm -hmm. it's more of a. I think there's more of just like a survival instinct, and they just kind of came out on top, and this is how they uh, how they sustain it. Yeah, I, I think that's. I don't know if that quite answers your question, but yeah, that, it, no, you you took it in a different way, but a, very, a much more interesting way. Okay, that, yeah, because the thing is that there's no direct interaction, or even necessarily an indirect interaction with Mr. C. Uh, I mean, of course, if Mr. C showed up to Vegas, uh, that that could be a factor. In fact, maybe it's worth mentioning is that when Mr. C created the Dougie Tulpa, that uh, Mr. C would have to go back to Vegas in some capacity. So it's not impossible he would run into the Mitchum brothers, but I also just, you know, I think of, like, Vegas Vegas is a big place, and the Mitchum yeah. brothers are just, like, two more people in this massive 
massive city. Yeah, because I, I, I couldn't think of any like direct threads connecting, you know, like through other characters. How do you get from Mr. C to the Mitchum brothers? Mm -hmm. it was a little, I guess, I guess you can get Mr. C to Cooper and then Cooper to Dougie, but that's that's kind of cheating. But yeah, there's 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 no obvious connection that I could think of. That was just a random question that I was wondering if you saw something that I didn't see. Okay. Um, but I think that does wrap it up, though. Was there anything else we should mention about the Mitchum brothers before plugging any social media? No, just just how much damn fun they are to watch on screen and how spectacularly acted they were, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that every single time they're on the screen, your 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 body actually like moves. <laughs> At least mine does moves toward the screen. Mm -hmm. um, it's such an interesting relationship they had with with Candy, especially. I I can't wait until you, if you ever do a Candy episode, I can't wait to hear that character talked about, um, by somebody who can see things that you know that I certainly can't, because she, she's one of the great mysteries of the show, and she's always attached to, to the Mitchum brothers, and you know they obviously have a soft spot for her. Um, it's so weird that the other two women don't speak at all um the other uh, one little quick thing i wanted to ask you was was there anything i know you got to meet all of them the actresses um and w was there anything as a result of that meeting that changed your take on the return or i'm not sure if it necessarily changed my outlook on the return at large but i will say is that they are there is something where you meet them in person and they're it's shocking to say because of how they're presented in the return, but mm. they are so much more radiant in person. And the way that they talk about Lynch and the reverence that they had, uh, yeah, I think that I remember like uh, like one of them was just talking about how they like they wouldn't even just be in the makeup trail; they would just be watching Lynch directing the whole time because they were so fascinated. So there's a lot of stuff from like uh, from that angle that I thought was extremely fascinating. But I don't know if it necessarily changed how I look at Candy, Sandy, or Mandy. Yeah. I think that uh, it's like it's like when I did my interview with Amy Shields, where she's uh, where she she doesn't want to give away too much. I think she wants uh, you know much like Lynch, Frost, and Sabrina Sullivan, where she wants people to think of it in the way that they see it, where she doesn't want yeah. her uh, opinion to really influence them. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, no, I, I have I have nothing else to add other than love for the Mitchum brothers and uh, appreciation for you. You're doing you're doing such a great job, and uh, it's it's really impressive. And I appreciate you uh, asking me to chat. Nice to meet you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess the uh, you know to let people know because you do something that's like quite.